Welcome to the IH Podcast, where we profile current and former fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, Coordinator for Faculty Programs. In this episode, I speak with Glenn Henson, Associate Professor of Folklore and Anthropology. In our conversation, we discussed the vernacular poem, A Black Man Talks to God, by Horace Williams. Professor Henson recalls the moment in which Mr. Williams recited this poem during an interview in the 1980s and the impact of this piece on Dr. Henson's academic investigations. I came to know Horace Williams as a, as a musician, as a hustler, um, as a street raconteur. He was living in Philadelphia at the time. This was in the mid-80s. He was a figure known around Philadelphia because he was a remarkable spoons player. Oh, okay. Probably the finest rhythmic master of the spoons that I've ever encountered. And he would play on the streets. He would sometimes shine shoes. He would sometimes do other things. He was, he'd been born in 1917, so he was an elder at this point, and... I got to know him because of his music, the spoons playing, and the songs that he performed sometimes when he played the spoons. At one point, we were sitting in his apartment, living in public housing, sort of a hellhole of public housing in Philadelphia, on the 18th floor of one of these public high-rises. And we were sitting talking about his history. And he was... He began to recount a story about witnessing a multiple lynching when he was a child, a young child. Oh, wow. And then as he tells the story, when he finishes, and I'm, I'm a little, I'm taken aback. I wasn't expecting this. You know, here I am, I'm young, this young white guy in the presence of this African-American elder who is telling a story about racial violence. And shortly after he tells that story, though, he moves into a poem. And that poem is The Black Man Talks to God. My father, we are down here in a part of your world where all men are supposed to be free. But, oh, Father God, torches being used by the steel toes on shoes and a noose is a swing in a tree. I was taken aback in part because of, first, the seamlessness with which he moved into it, and second, because the idea of sort of this vernacular poetry telling was not something that I was familiar with. I had counted myself somewhat humbly and deferentially as a student of African-American expressive culture. But the... And I'd known about certain types of working-class poetry most particularly about the form called the toasts, which mm-hmm. are long body rhyme narratives told okay. usually by men in male company. And those are, the, those are the poems that were most celebrated by the white academy. Sort mm-hmm. of that was the area of poetic creativity that was outside of the arena of, of more formal academic poetry yeah. that was written about for African America this poem that he was reciting was not a toast right it was a biting trenchant political piece 
a reflection on racism in the South, a reflection on what he grew up with. I didn't know what it was. It was, it was remarkable. It was powerful. And he just moved into it and then kept reciting until it was over. Oh, Father God, you know we are made to fight in all their wars. And they teach us to shoot their guns. But as soon as they have won a victory, you know, that our wars has then begun. Because the same soldiers that we fought beside to bring them a victory. My God, there's some of the same who hide behind sheets and destroys our family. And I just sat there, honestly, a little stunned and confused. And I said, what is it? What, what, you know, I said, I wanted to know how long he'd been telling it. Was it his? He said it was his, that he created it. Didn't say wrote it. He created it back in the 1930s. And he'd been reciting it ever since. And I said, what do you call it? And at first he gave me the title, Black Man Talks to God. I said, no, I mean, where does it fit? It's not, I said, I'm familiar with toast. And he says, that's not a toast. Right. And I'm like, so what is it? And he says, it's a poem. Mm-hmm. I said, what does that mean? I know it's a poem. And he says, no, 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 it's a poem. He said, there are poems and there are toasts. That's a poem. He said, yeah, toasts are different. He said, poems are serious. Poems are one person's experience captured in verse. Those are the exact words mm-hmm. he used. He said, toasts belong to everybody. It's yeah. like 10,000 mouths will put a toast together. One person tell a toast, another person tell their version. The poem is yours. And I said, I've never encountered this before, never encountered this sort of, this world of oral narrative not written down, as he was very clear to say that these were not written. Right. Um, and they weren't really passed down, but they were frequently performed. Oh, I see. And, and he said, uh, he said, when I was growing up in South Carolina, he said, the old heads out in the fields used to tell poems all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, in the fields? They're telling poems. He said, yeah. Um, and I said, well, when did you enter into this tradition? He says, I was eight years old when I told my first poem. He then proceeded to offer others. And many of the pieces were, many but not all, were autobiographical. Right. Many of them were, many were political. Um, I continued to work with Mr. Williams for many years after that and recorded a lot of his poems and talked with him a lot about the tradition, his understandings of the tradition, his testimonies about the breadth of this tradition, his curiosity about why I'd never heard about it. Mm -hmm. If I knew about toasts, though he was quick to say, well, these, a lot of these things you wouldn't tell to the white folks. Uh-huh. And I'm like, clearly because of the nature of the ones that he was telling. He said it was just too dangerous, especially down south. And so sort of humbly following his invitation to look further afield, as I did so, I realized that actually this is a vast, long-standing, 
well-established tradition that has existed on virtually every level of um, sort of from the most vernacular, entirely oral, all the way to the more literate, the most literate written, that this continuum has, has always been a part of African-American vernacular culture in the South and elsewhere. And that when you start looking for it, what you discover are histories of communities that have poets. And so you would have, you'd have working class communities with a poet walker or a poet Tyler who would, who would be kind of one of the wise people in the community who captured community experience in verse and presented it back to community. Men and women, I would say fully equally balanced. Okay. And some of these some of these poets at some point would write their pieces, would self-publish them. Mm-hmm. There were these whole worlds of self-published poetry. There still are those worlds of self-published poetry in African American communities. If you, if you go to towns and cities that have African-American bookstores, for example. Okay, yeah. There's always chapbooks of poetry. Now, this poetry that you've encountered and heard or read, have you kind of studied any of the structure of it, like the kind of poetics of it or the meter? Or, or are there commonalities, or is it dependent <clears throat> on the, the poet? There are definitely structural commonalities. Yes. That, uh, in the same way that there are in song, correct. You know, one yeah. can look at, one can look at sacred song or blues or early R and B. You have a set of structures that are just familiar. Mm-hmm. In the same way, in many of these poems, you have uh, often iambic pentameter. You have uh, various rhyme schemes but usually perfect rhymes, almost always end rhymes. Uh, A very sort of classic pattern. What's a book that changed your life? Well, I would say a poem that changed my life would be this one. Yeah? Yes, would be A Black Man Talks to God. Okay. I would say absolutely. How so? Um, Because for me, it was an incredibly humbling moment. As a moment when, when essentially I was reminded, uh, rather starkly, of my whiteness and my outsiderness to this community, I was reminded of that which I don't know, and purposefully don't know, uh, that which was not meant for me to know, as it were. And that's how he framed it. That's how Mr. Williams definitely framed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be invited in to this moment was, it was, it forced a, a kind of reckoning. It forced a reckoning that, that is always with me uh, about, about my place, about assumptions that I make, about my racial positionality in these moments, uh, and the inescapability of that, and the recognition that one's outsider status is always an outsider status. And it's always about looking in. So for me, I would say my path since then was transformed okay. by the encounter with Mr. Williams yeah. uh, and, and the encounters that followed. I mean, I, 
we knew each other and worked together for many years. Um, so, but I would say that moment was pretty yeah. transformative. That's great. Uh, well, thank you. Okay. All right. Check out more interviews at iah.unc.edu or subscribe to the IAH podcast on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud or Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.